You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. Almost any sphere of life can become a sphere of tension. We see this play out in different ways, don't we? Over the last several weeks and months, we saw uh, tension mount at the border between Russia and Ukraine, and the tension mounted and mounted and mounted until it became what? All-out war. We've seen tension mount in other places. We see tension mount in our own nation in terms of politics and between different ethnicities. We see tension mount in workplaces, in corporate environments, sometimes in our own homes. And we all know from experience that the church itself is not exempt from tension and rising tension. The good news is the church in the 21st century isn't the first church to experience tension. The church in the first century had to deal with the same sorts of things. And in Acts chapter 6, 7, and 8, we we get a sense of this, this rising tension. Before this, the apostles had been proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and and calling people to repentance and calling people to faith in him. And they met with some tension, didn't they? The the authorities, the power players, big boys in the temple got wind of it, brought them in, gave them a talking to, a little slap on the wrist, sent them back out, told them not to do that anymore. They did it some more. They got hauled back in, got another stern talking to, and sent back out. And this cycle just kind of continued, and the tension did what? The tension rose. Until we get to this place where this guy named Stephen, who is one of these men of good repute who was well regarded and who was trustworthy when the apostles needed help they were they were kind of getting overwhelmed as people the church was growing and as churches grow you need structure to handle that growth don't you and so they said hey we can't do this by ourselves anymore we need some help so we're going to bring in some more people and we're going to kind of delegate some of the different ministries and one of the guys they brought in was this guy named Stephen they brought in some other folks but right now Luke, the author of Acts, focuses in on this guy named Stephen. And Stephen apparently was a rather bold fellow and didn't mind calling it like he saw it, even if it made enemies and created conflict and tension. And so Stephen's out there preaching, and people start complaining about it. And the tension cranks up. And that rising tension brings with it what looks like increased risk, doesn't it? Like things all of a sudden get a lot riskier for the, for the church. Like it's one thing to get hauled in and get a slap on the wrist. Don't do that anymore. And you got some people on the council who, who are, who are kind of just reminding everybody, hey, if this is of God, then we're not going to be able to stop it. And if it's not, it'll, it'll sputter out. And so just let's keep an even hand, and let's not get too crazy, but, but the wor- that voice of wisdom didn't win out, the tension rose, the risk got greater and greater and greater to the point where men like Stephen and the other apostles even risk what? Their lives. The thing about it is, though, when we start talking about what sort of, when we start asking the question, what sort of risks am I willing to take for the kingdom of God? Because that's 
what Acts is about, isn't it? This is the way of the kingdom. This is about how the kingdom of God starts out in Jerusalem. And as we see here, just like Jesus said at the end of this passage, the gospel spreads to Samaria, somewhat counterintuitively because of persecution. But Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses. Where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. Well, here's the first time in all of Acts at the end of this passage, right? The gospel starts going outside of Judea to Samaria, to you know, out there, kind of cross the tracks, little, the next county over, so to speak. Not because they're particularly focused on getting to the next space, but because persecution pushes the church out. And it feels risky for the church as the kingdom spreads. People are starting to die. And shouldn't we kind of haul it like, like if somebody dies... Because of the proclamation, maybe we should haul it in a little bit and kind of hedge our bets and try to put up some safety. Let's negotiate this and figure out a safer way to do it. But they understood something that we've got to begin to understand, and they embraced a principle that we also must embrace. And that's that risk for the kingdom is no risk at all. Because the thing we stand to gain is everything. By the end of this passage, Stephen, who risked his life and lost it, gained Jesus, didn't he? And when you gain Jesus, everything else is worth losing. When you gain Jesus, everything else is worth losing. How do we get to this point? Stephen, when faced with conflict, could have hedged his bets, couldn't he? You know, the thing, like there's there's often time to roll it back. If you've been in a conflict and the tension's kind of rising, maybe it's a holy conflict, maybe it's an unholy conflict. Either way, the illustration works. There's a point where you can roll it back, right? Sometimes you get past that point and it's very hard to roll it back, but There's a point where you can roll it back. At the beginning of this passage, I think Stephen can still roll it back, can't he? But he doesn't. And he doesn't because the thing that he's bearing witness to, the one he's bearing witness to, you don't roll back on Jesus, do you? Well, you can, but you don't want to. That's not where you want to be. So Stephen gets confronted. And Luke, author of Acts, tells us that he's facing accusations. The accusations kind of start at one place and they build up. The initial accusation is that he's blaspheming Moses. Now, that really struck me as I was reading through this this week. The order of the blasphemy. Like Typically, when we think about blasphemy, who's the only being that you can blaspheme? That seems obvious, right? But what's the charge? He's blaspheming Moses and God. It's like they almost got to like, like you got to get God in there for good measure to make it, because you can't really blaspheme a person anyway, but you can see where the priorities are. And they've taken Moses and put him in the place of priority. You can say what you want about God, but don't talk bad about Moses. You see, their priorities have shifted. Instead of letting Moses be the one who points them to their God, they've kind of shifted over and said, we're going to focus on Moses. And we'll throw God in for good measure because we know if we're going to talk about blasphemy, you've got to get him in. But we're really concerned that you're messing with Moses. And the charges escalate from there. 
Notice the verbs. They, like, they, they confront him. They seize him and they bra- drag him in before the council. Those other charges weren't enough, so they set up false witnesses. He never stops saying things against this holy place. So it's not just Moses. Now it's what? The temple. They're meeting in the temple. The council does its thing in the temple. This is the holy place. Not only is he talking about, about Moses and God, he's talking about, about the temple. He's going around saying, Jesus of Nazareth, who we thought was dead, and we, you know, he, that's done, but they keep talking about him, that he's going to destroy this place, the temple, and change the customs that Moses handed on to us. You can kind of see how this just, nobody's rolling back. <laughs> it just keeps escalating. You can feel the tension building again and higher and higher and higher. And as the tension builds, the risk increases. Like this is getting to the point where a slap on the hand like we got back in chapter 3, chapter 4 isn't going to suffice anymore. We need some serious consequences if we're going to keep these Christians quiet. You can kind of feel the tension building. False witnesses charge Stephen with Betraying the Bible, Moses, betraying God, and betraying the place of worship, the temple. And so Stephen has a moment, an opportunity, in this very apparently risky situation, he has an opportunity to give an account. And you may have noticed that this lengthy account he gives drops in on some very significant aspects of the history of the people, the Hebrew people, the Israelites. Starts with the beginning of their story, doesn't he? Where does he start? Starts with Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham. Your children are going to go into another land. They're going to be slaves in that other land. But I'm going to rescue them. I'm going to bring them back to this land. And I'm going to give them this land. I know you don't have any children yet. I'm going to take care of that. I've made you a promise, God says. And my promise is good. Some things go on. You get kind of a fast forward. You get a lot of information about Abraham, uh, Jacob, And Isaac, get a quick mention, we settle in on Joseph. But the whole thing about Joseph isn't really about Joseph, it's about setting the stage for who? Moses. The charge was, you've betrayed Moses. And Stephen says, oh yeah? Let me tell you about Moses. Moses was a counterintuitive rescuer. He knew he was called by God to rescue the people. The people did not want him for their rescuer. Sound familiar? The, the, the comparison is pretty obvious, isn't it? Hey, synagogue goers and council and temple power player crew, God sent a rescuer and you didn't recognize him. Yes, it's counterintuitive that he's not one of you because anyone who's worth anyone would be a part of your circle, all right? It's counterintuitive that he was the son of a carpenter and a traveling preacher man. It's counterintuitive that he would come into the temple and oppose you. And it's counterintuitive that God would let you kill his Messiah. And yet, our people have a really good track record of not recognizing their rescuers. And so the whole story is, you know, it's long, but it's driving at this reality that God rescues his people in ways they do not expect. You get this story about Moses, and he comes in here, and he seems like the right guy. If you just sort of look at his resume, 
He's got the best education in the whole land. Probably speaks a couple of different languages. He's, you know, he's, he's, he's got everything you need to make it. So he goes to his people, and he starts trying to rescue them, trying to reconcile things. Hey, guys, don't argue, you know, and they, they just, they reject him. He supposed his kinfolk would understand that God through him was rescuing them, but they did not understand. That's the crucial piece in that entire passage, isn't it? You would think the Hebrew people would recognize their rescuer. And you can see how Stephen disregards the risk at this point, doesn't he? I mean, I think personally, I think his fate is sealed right there, halfway through the speech. He's to the point where he realizes, <laughs> I'm going to lay it all out. It's all on the table. Jesus, everything or nothing. He's got an opportunity before this to roll it back. All right, guys, surely we can figure something out. We can kind of come to an agreement. We can, we can compromise. But when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the mission, no compromise for Stephen. He's willing to die. Feels risky, doesn't it? I mean, I'm kind of worried to put myself in his shoes. Perhaps you've already had that thought yourself. Maybe you've thought, man, what if, like, what if that was me? Would I be ready? Could I, e could I even talk about Abraham confidently or talk about Moses confidently? And, and here Stephen models for us this, this, this radical wisdom. Here's a guy who is immersed in the Scriptures and who, who has been offering himself to the Word of God. And now, in this moment of rising tension and what looks like ultimate risk, he doesn't walk it back. And I wonder, I wonder when I read passages like this, O'Reilly, <laughs> would you walk it back? And, I, and, and I'm inclined to think, like, this is a long text, and you did well. I'm proud of you. Like, it was long. We made it. Probably thinking it wasn't as long as this sermon's getting. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm inclined to think that it gets drawn out to give us time to ask the question. Maybe this isn't just about Stephen. Maybe it's just as much about me. And am I understanding, and not only understanding, but embracing that risk for the kingdom isn't really risk? Because when you lay it all out for the kingdom of God, you gain Jesus. And if you gain Jesus, you might as well be willing. Like, nothing else comes close. Nothing else comes close. Reputation, riches, influence. You gain Jesus, nothing else comes close. And so Stephen digs it in. And he wraps this speech up. Starts out with, you want to talk about Moses? Moses was just predicting what would happen here. He was a counterintuitive rescuer. They didn't recognize him then. He said another, he even told the Hebrew people, one day God's going to raise up another rescuer like me. Counterintuitively. That happened with Jesus. And what? The council doesn't recognize him. 
the temple power players, they don't recognize him. It's all the, and so, so he talks about Moses, he switches over and talks about the temple. You want to talk about the temple? God's plan was to live in a tent, not a temple. God's plan was to live in the tabernacle. Camped out with his people, they're wandering around in the wilderness. God went with them, his presence was with them. It wasn't until centuries later that David gets the bright idea that God should live in a house. He doesn't get to build a house. Solomon, his son, builds the house. And even as they're doing it, God reminds them, what kind of God lives in a house? Like, if you can fit your God in your house, you don't have much of a God. Heaven is his throne, and earth is his footstool. It's interesting that we get that image right before Stephen peers into the heavenly throne room. and sees Jesus standing as we confessed a few minutes ago together, at the right hand of God. One of the reasons the creed has lasted, and one of the reasons we say it together, one of the reasons we confess together every week that the Lord Jesus Christ reigns at the right hand of God the Father Almighty is because you will not be ready to risk everything for Jesus if you don't have that on your brain and in your heart every day. Like if, we, if we forget that Jesus reigns, don't expect to have courage. If we forget that the Lord Jesus Christ intercedes for His people and calls the shots from the throne of heaven over His kingdom as it advances on earth, even if it's counterintuitive, because friends, sometimes it's counterintuitive, isn't it? I mean, we're looking back and we're seeing things and things look like a massive mess from where we are. And we think, if Jesus is in charge, why is it such a mess? And the Psalms tell us that he who sits in heaven laughs. Because he sees the end game. He knows it's not a mess. We have very limited vision. And that's why we need to be reminded in Scripture and in worship and in creed that the Lord Jesus Christ reigns at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, because if you know and you have it in your mind and in your heart and in your being that Jesus reigns at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, it will give you courage. And it will give your children courage. Where is Jesus right now? Ask that question every day and be reminded that He is in His place at the right hand of God. There is a human being Fully God, fully human. Don't forget that. There's a human body in heaven. You just read it in Acts chapter 6. The body of Jesus that was crucified, the body of Jesus that was raised, is the body of Jesus that ascended with the clouds, and that body of Jesus, that very human physical body with the marks of the cross and the glory of the resurrection now reigns over all things and His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and His dominion is a never-ending dominion. And there is no sphere of creation that is outside the bounds of His loving reign. And when we forget that, that's when we start to draw back. When we forget that, that's when we start to hedge our bets. When we forget that, that's when we start coming up with contingency plans. When we remember, when we have the vision that Stephen has in this text. And we're not distracted by the temple. We're focused on Jesus. We're not distracted by circumstances. Focused on Jesus. And where is Jesus? 
right hand of the Father. And what does he do there? Reigns over all places with joy and a smile and a glad heart. He rests as he reigns and works all things to his purposes for the good of his people. When we forget that, we hedge our bets and we pull back. When we remember it, his spirit gives us courage. The question is, which camp do you want to be in? Do you want to be in the contingency, hedge my bets, let me roll it back and play it safe camp? You can make it a long time there. Or do you want to be in the, I'm going to risk it all for Jesus because I know risking it all for Jesus is no risk at all because he is my sufficient, he's my all-sufficient rescuer, savior, Lord. And yes, it looks counterintuitive. And yes, the world looks crazy. But that doesn't mean that Jesus is not at work. He is enthroned. And if he is enthroned, his people can have confidence that He intercedes for them, and that He empowers them. We have confidence that He empowers us through His Spirit to bear witness for Him to our neighbors and, come on, I say it every week, you should know it by now, the neighbors and the nations. Amen. Brothers and sisters, amen. And that's exactly what happens here, isn't it? In all this counterintuitiveness, if we can use that word, God uses the martyr, the first martyr, and the ensuing persecution to spread the gospel. This is why one of the early church fathers said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that's what we get right here. The apostles are focused on Jerusalem. Maybe some folks get out to Judea, kind of outside a little bit, but we're focused on Jerusalem. And what happens when the persecution breaks out? When Stephen dies because they threw rocks at him till he was dead? How's your day going? That day, a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. And we think, man, what a disaster. What a mess. Like, how are they going to plant their church if they're having to hide from the bad guys? And then we remember, all the way back in chapter 1, Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses. Where? Jerusalem. Yes. Where else? Judea. Yes, where else? Samaria. How are we going to get there? This is how. Persecution spreads the gospel. And the church goes with increasing conviction, willing to risk everything because they know when you risk it all for the kingdom, it's not really a risk. You can risk everything when you stand to gain the one who is everything. So we've got to start asking questions, don't we? First of all, where is God working counterintuitively in our lives and in the life of the church? We're not very good at asking that question because it's counterintuitive. <laughs> But we need to ask the question, how is God at work 
in unexpected ways. I mean, this has been a problem for God's people since the beginning. Whether it's Moses, whether it's Jesus, God works and we miss it. God sends a rescuer and people miss it. God sends the Messiah and people miss it. Let's not be the people who miss it. So let's ask the Lord, let's be prayerful and say, Lord, won't you open our eyes so that we don't miss the counterintuitive things that you're doing? Mentioned in our prayer time that our denomination is in a continued conflict. And that conflict is just, <laughs> the tension has risen, to put it mildly. If you're not super in the know, just take my word for it. And I'm in this season quite hopeful because we're reading Acts. And Acts reminds me that in really messy situations where things get a little nuts and crazy and sometimes people die, Jesus is standing at the right hand of God orchestrating the mission of His church to take the world for the gospel and to fill the nations with hope and joy and gladness and holiness and perfect love. And he raised up the people called Methodists over 300 years ago to spread scriptural holiness throughout the land. And for the last 40 or 50 years, we have been focused on a denominational conflict. And brothers and sisters, we're about to get turned loose to spread scriptural holiness across the land. Thanks be to God. Let's not get distracted. There's work to be done. We're going to do it. But let's keep the end game in play. It is our job, it is our calling, it is our mission, mission, mission to make sure our neighbors and know that Jesus reigns at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and he calls all of them, all of us, and all of them to believing repentance and obedience. And he desires to take the woundedness and the brokenness and the darkness and the unholiness and the sinfulness and all, like the junk. It's all there. We all have it. We all know it. They got it too. We can be honest about that. The one who reigns in heaven wants to heal it. Wants to make it whole. Wants to give us hope. Wants to fill us with his perfect love and his unparalleled joy. And he's given us the gospel as the instrument for that goal is the instrument for attaining that end. So let's look for the counterintuitive ways he's at work. How is God going to surprise us in this season? How is God going to, to, to bear fruit for his kingdom when it feels like we're locked in tension and conflict? He will do it. question is whether we see it or not. Jesus like, Jesus rescued his people regardless of whether the council recognizes or not. And he will rescue his church today regardless of whether you and I see it or not. That's why we pray, Jesus, give us eyes to see the surprising ways, the counterintuitive ways that you are at work. I don't want to miss that. I don't want to be distracted. I hope you don't either. Question then is, what's our posture? I'm struck by Stephen's posture as the rocks begin to fly. You remember what he, what he said? Let me just read it to you again. I know you heard it. I want to make sure we remember. 
He's filled with the Holy Spirit. This is uh, chapter 7, verse 55. Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God, saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, remember, Jesus is typically seated at the right hand of God. It's a remarkable moment here where apparently Jesus sees this situation with Stephen as crucial enough, as important enough to stand. Number one, to intercede for him, and I think to welcome him into his presence. They cover their ears, the persecutors, with a loud shout. They all rush together against him. They drag him out of the city. They begin to stone him. The witnesses lay their coat at the feet of a man named Stahl. What is Stephen's posture? While they were stoning him, verse 59, Stephen said this, Number one, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. If you remember the Gospels, that's the sort of thing Jesus says the moment before he dies. Receive my spirit. And then he says something else. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Does that sound familiar? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And the portrait, like Luke could have just said, at this point, Stephen is embodying the character of Jesus. But that probably wouldn't have like settled on us quite so stunningly, would it? Because stories have more power than just, you know, Systematic theology sometimes. <laughs> so what does he do? He grabs two two sentences from Jesus in the Gospels. And he pulls them forward. And he puts them on Stephen's lips. Receive my spirit and forgive my murderers. Because he wants us to see that in this moment, Stephen, who is willing to risk his life and lose it, has gained everything he has become like Jesus. In his death, in his martyrdom, he embodies the character of Jesus in every way. Like this guy in this moment, he's got nothing held back. <laughs> he is 100% devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ in this moment. You don't go get yourself stoned if you're not 100% devoted to Jesus, right? Right? Like, you don't lose your life for the kingdom if there's not comprehensive, total, exhaustive, self-giving posture to the Lord Jesus Christ. In this moment, at the end of his earthly life, Stephen, this martyr, is thoroughly like Jesus. And that's what Luke wants us to see by putting these words of Jesus on Stephen's mouth. And Luke is inviting us to consider what would your prayer be in that moment? I'll let you answer that question. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.